Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi are two of the best football players in the world. And on the night of January 11th, 2016, some vandals spray painted a statue of Cristiano Ronaldo in his hometown in Portugal with the name and the jersey number of Lionel Messi. While everybody else slept, these vandals were busy at work and when Ronaldo's hometown woke up the next day, their beloved hometown hero's statue was defaced. That is, vandalized and distorted from its original design. What's the significance of this action? When the vandals did that, was it an act of respect for Cristiano Ronaldo, in whose image the statue was made? No, of course not. It was actually an act of disrespect toward Ronaldo. Now, never mind that the statue is not actually Cristiano Ronaldo. Nobody will look and see a statue and go over and try to get an autograph from the statue. We all know that the statue is not the, that whom it represents. But because the statue is made in his image, in his likeness, to deface the statue of Cristiano Ronaldo is to show disrespect for the man himself. Keep this idea in mind as it will become increasingly relevant as we work our way through today's text. We're looking specifically at two verses in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. But we'll be referring to several verses in the rest of the Bible as we go and trying to explore this idea of the image of God. What does it mean that humans were created in the image of God? What are the implications and what are the applications of this doctrine? What does it mean for us today that the Bible tells us that in the beginning, way back then, God created mankind in His image? These are some of the questions that we'll be answering this evening as we look at this text. So we're going to look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27 under the following three what's. What we are, what went wrong, and what now. Everything we'll cover is going to fall under one of those headings. So let's start with what we are. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Obviously, the two key words here with respect to our study is image and likeness. Man, which refers to mankind, or all humans, were created in God's image after God's likeness. As we begin to consider what we are as humans, we need to understand what these two words mean. John Currid, who is a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, states that the Hebrew word for image, which is salam, if anyone's interested, originally, and I quote, originally meant something cut from an object. For example, a piece of clay cut from a sculpture. In such a case, there exists a concrete resemblance between the object and the image. So in other words, according to Currid, 
The word for image conveys the same idea as we're trying to communicate when we might say that a son is cut from the same cloth as his father. There is an idea of organic unity implicit in the original Hebrew word for image. Purit goes on to say, in the Bible, Salem also denotes a statue of himself that a king would erect to serve as a symbol of his sovereignty. So for example, Daniel chapter 3. Anyone remember what happened there? In Daniel 3, the passage that Curid references, a king named Nebuchadnezzar creates a statue, presumably of himself, made of gold, and commands that when everyone hears the music play, they should bow down and worship the statue. So it's like, it's like a twisted, idolatrous game of musical chairs in reverse. Do you play musical chairs here in Barbados? Yeah. The music goes and everybody walks around and then the music stops and you find a seat. It's kind of like an idolatrous game of musical chairs in reverse. Instead of finding a seat when the music stops, you bow down when the music starts. Right? This is what Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter 3. Obviously, the image that the king sets up is closely intertwined with the king himself. He's creating an image in order that the people might honor him by respecting that which is made in his image. So to disrespect the king's image is to disrespect the king himself. Curran closes his comment by saying, the fact that Salem is applied to humans at creation indicates that they are God's representatives on earth and have a character and being in keeping with that of the deity. In other words, we are made to represent God here on this earth. We are not God, just as Nebuchadnezzar's statue is not Nebuchadnezzar himself, and just as Ronaldo's statue is not Ronaldo himself, but just as Nebuchadnezzar's statue represents him, and Ronaldo's statue represents him, so we are to represent God. In some sense, we are to be a statue of God here on earth. We are not physical images of God because God doesn't have a body. But we are cut from the same cloth, so to speak. We are Selem of God. We bear a resemblance of nature to God. And we are His appointed representatives here on earth. Statues of God, as it were. At a basic level, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. Being made after His likeness connotes a similarity of being. We are like God. I'm teaching my son, Max, the difference between the concepts of the same and similar. So if we're out driving and we see two silver cars, two different makes and models, perhaps one's a Nissan and one's a Suzuki, I ask him, are they the same or are they similar? And he's getting pretty good at it, so he knows, he says, similar. But if we see two Suzuki Swifts of the same year, and I ask him, are they the same or similar? The same. In the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century AD, theologians debated whether Jesus was homoousios or homoousios with God the Father. Those terms mean the same in substance or similar in substance. It's a really fine distinction, but it's a very crucial distinction to make. The question was whether Jesus Christ was of the same nature as God or of a similar nature to God. Let's leave that question aside for a moment. And I just want to make this point. 
in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, often quoted in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles, the word translated into English as likeness in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is, can you guess? Homoiousios. Of similar nature. Of similar nature. Not of the same nature. We're not God. We're not becoming gods. But we are like God. In some sense. We are intended by God. To be like God. In some sense. So what? that's what those two terms mean. Image and likeness. We are created to be God-like representatives of God here on earth. This indicates something about our responsibilities and something about our essence. <clears throat> our responsibilities <clears throat> as God's representatives are, unsurprisingly, to carry out God's instructions. If you hire a lawyer, she is your representative. She acts on your behalf in a way that you have instructed her to do. And if she fails to do so, she is a bad lawyer. Her responsibility as your representative is to carry out your instructions. So it is with us. As God's representatives, we are to carry out God's instructions to us. We are acting in this world on behalf of another. And so we have a responsibility to God. The scripture uniformly teaches that we are to obey God. That really shouldn't surprise anybody. Everybody knows that. But this has its roots in our status as image bearers of God, and we might not always think about it that way. As his representatives, we are to carry out his commands. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith summarizes this idea in chapter 4 and paragraph 2, where it says that Adam and Eve were, quote, made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts. So though they were not given the moral law of God in written form, it was written on their hearts at creation. And they were to obey it along with other specific instructions that they were given at their creation. So for example, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2:17. As image bearers, our responsibility is to obey God. But being image bearers is more than a list of responsibilities. It's an inalienable essence, which means that it is part of who we fundamentally are. We humans can't be anything but image bearers of God. Like Simba in The Lion King, like Neo in The Matrix, like Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, we can't run and hide forever from who we are. We are fundamentally image bearers of God. We might try to deny that, we might try to run from that, but we are fundamentally, all of us, image bearers of God. We try to deny it, we try to hide from it, we try to erase it, but we cannot. Trying to escape the fact that we are made in God's image is like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. It just cannot be done. We can as well unmake ourselves as remake ourselves as something other than we, what we actually are. We are image bearers of God. That's just the way it is. It's part of our essence. And I'm not just talking about Christians. I'm talking about all humans. Mm. Every human being is fundamentally, essentially, ontologically, 
an image bearer of God. Every human being is something like a statue of God upon this earth. Every human being is homoousios with God, of similar nature to God. Every human being, therefore, has responsibilities toward God. And this is why many people try to escape the reality that we're made in God's image. Because if we're made in His image, then we owe Him something. And that's why many people try to escape this reality. People understand what Jesus meant. Remember when they came to Him and they asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And He says, bring me a coin. And they bring Him a coin. He says, whose image is this? Caesar. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And render to God what belongs to God. What he's saying is, you bear God's image, so you give God yourself. That's an implication of what Jesus was teaching in that section. We owe God our very selves because we're made in His image. And this is why people try to run, people try to hide, people try to deny and suppress the truth that they're made in God's image because they instinctively know that if we are made in His image, then we owe God our very lives. But another and more readily palatable aspect of this truth to the unbelieving person is that every human being ontologically possesses inherent worth and dignity. Every human being possesses worth and dignity essentially, fundamentally. Every human being, by virtue of the fact that they are created in the image of God, has inherent worth and dignity. Every human being. In other words, no matter whether they do worthy and dignified things or not, every human being is worthwhile and possesses a basic dignity by virtue of her essence as an image bearer of God. So to put it even more simply and to put it even more directly, you are all valuable and worthwhile. You all possess worth and dignity as those who are made in the image of God. Even when Prince Harry was photographed a few years ago behaving badly, smoking marijuana, consorting with unknown women in Las Vegas, he was still part of the royal family. And he bore a certain dignity as a prince regardless of how he carried on. Likewise, you and I and everyone else, all human beings, as an image bearer of God, possess an inherent worth and dignity as image bearers, regardless of how we carry on. So not merely do we all have responsibilities of image bearers, but we all are image bearers, regardless of how we act. And there's a certain worth and dignity that accompanies that attribute. So that's what we are. We are all image bearers of God. Now as Professor John Currid has stated, almost every important church doctrine is found in seed form in the book of Genesis. And certainly this is true of the image of God. The doctrine of the image of God. What we've just discussed is just the seed of the doctrine of the image of God. We see in the early chapters of Genesis that we were made in the image of God but the idea of the image of God is only in seed form here in Genesis chapter 1. Without the rest of Scripture, our understanding of what the image of God is, how sin 
and redemption impact and shape our conception of the image of God and what it means for us today would be stunted. And so our understanding of the image of God must be informed by no less than Genesis 1. We have to look at Genesis 1 if we want to properly understand the doctrine of the image of God. No less than Genesis 1, but our understanding must certainly be informed by more than simply Genesis 1. So let's look at some selections from the rest of Scripture now to see how God further unfolds and develops the idea of the image of God in the rest of His revelation to us. We're moving on from our first heading, what we are, and we're investigating from the rest of Scripture, our second and third heading, what went wrong and what now. So secondly, what went wrong? If we are all image bearers of God, then only two things are possible. God is like us, as we presently are now, or we have done a poor job of representing God. Many people assume that the first is true. And so they reason that if God is like us, and they look around and see people around them that they don't like, then they think that God is not worth liking. In other words, they don't like what they see in other humans, and so they assume that God is uh, like them, and not worthy of being liked either. <clears throat> However, the Bible tells us that actually the second option is true. That we have done a poor job of representing God. That's the way the Bible talks about it. What went wrong? Instead of fulfilling our role as image bearers faithfully and diligently, we have defaulted on that responsibility and we've become poor representatives of God. Defaulting on our responsibility to act in accordance with God's nature, to be like Him, to be similar to Him, and to obey His commands, we have instead gone our own way and done whatever we wanted to do. And this is what the Bible calls sin. In the Baptist Catechism, question 18 asks, what is sin? And it answers like this, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression against the law of God. In other words, sin is doing what God has commanded us not to do, or sin is failing to do what God has commanded us to do. In other words, again, sin is doing what we shouldn't, or failing to do what we should. If we think through sin from the perspective of the image of God in man, sin is, therefore, acting in a way that is not similar to God. Sin is acting in a way that is not like God in a way that is inconsistent with God's nature. Sin is acting in a way that defies God's instructions, even though we're supposed to be following His instructions as His representatives. In other words, sin is disrespecting the God in whose image we are made by misusing ourselves and others for something other than their actual purpose. Sin is like reshaping the statue of God to make it what we want it to be, rather than to respect what the sculptor has made it to be. Sin is like the vandals who painted Ronaldo's statue with Messi's number. Sin is defacing the image of God in man, and in doing so, disrespecting God himself, in whose image we are made. Now, sin is not a total erasure 
of the image of God. The image of God is not totally absent from the human race in spite of our sin. In Genesis 9 verse 6 and in James 3 verse 9, which we read earlier, in both of those passages, which both come after the fall of mankind into sin, in both of those passages we read that God still expects us to treat one another as fellow image bearers of God. We still ought to treat one another as fellow image bearers of God even after the fall. And so what we see is that sin has defaced, but not erased, the image of God in man. As, a, as we said on, I think, Wednesday night at community group, but sometime recently I was communicating to you guys, sin is like, we were like a mirror made to reflect God's image. And sin is like taking a little ball-peen hammer and just tapping the mirror so that it shatters all over. You can still see some reflection, but it's a distorted and perverted and unclear reflection. And that's something like what sin has done to the image of God in man. It has defaced the image of God in man, but not utterly erased the image of God in man. So we are all now like statues with spray paint on them, or worse. And some of us have taken a chisel to ourselves or to others and tried to make the original image of God unrecognizable. Some of us have twisted, distorted, perverted, and denied the image of God so thoroughly. Perhaps some of us in this room, perhaps others here on this island, some humans have really, really distorted the image of God in themselves or in people around them. So that some, in some people, you can barely recognize that they're image bearers anymore. But the original sculptor knows what he originally formed. He knows what's underneath the spray paint. He knows what his intention was. He knows what that statue essentially is. And he still reckons each of us, you and I, to be image bearers. Genesis 9.6, James 3.9. Every person walking the face of this earth is an image bearer of God. And God still holds us responsible as His representatives to act according to His instructions. And as His children cut from the same cloth to act according to His nature. So do you see a dilemma emerging? Each of us is like a defaced and vandalized statue which should look like God, but doesn't. We are therefore in need of repair, and we are in need of forgiveness. We need forgiveness because we have not passively become poor image bearers through no fault of our own. Rather, we have actively dishonored the one in whose image we are made by refusing to live according to His design for us. And we need repair and restoration because we have become poor image bearers. And so we are like both the statues, which have been spray painted and distorted, and we are like the vandals who spray painted and distorted them. You see, we need both restoration and forgiveness. Mm. But wait, how have we defaced ourselves and others? Some might ask. Isn't sin the really bad things that some people do? murder or rape. I can see how some people have defaced the image of God in others by showing blatant disrespect for them, 
for their lives and for their personhood. But I have never done such a thing, and I never would do such a thing. Right? There are two important things that we need to understand. First is that God judges not only outward behavior, but also even our thoughts and our motivations and our attitudes. Mm. The second is that God doesn't grade on a curve. Jesus said, you have heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is an example of Jesus teaching that God's law requires more than outward conformity, but sincerity and purity all the way down to the bottom of our thoughts, our motivations, and our attitudes. So have you ever had a thought that was not in accordance with God's commands? Have you ever had an impure motivation? Then you have become a distorted image of God, a bad representative of God on earth. And God doesn't grade on the curve, which is to say that God will not show you leniency simply because you're not as bad as others. God demands absolute perfection and will act with specific and precise retributive justice for every last one of your sins. Even if they weren't as many or as egregious as someone else's sins. This is not a perfect analogy, but it's helpful. When it comes to sin, the human race is like a bunch of swimmers jumping in the sea off the East Coast and trying to make it all the way to Africa. Some might make it farther than others, but everybody's going down. We're, we, are all, we are all guilty and condemned as lawbreakers. And it's no use to say I'm not as guilty as the next man. We're all going to perish in our sin, but for the grace of God. We are all lawbreakers, poor and shoddy image bearers of God, bad representatives. And it won't do any good to say that statue looks less like God than me. That's just, God doesn't grade on the curve. Absolute perfection. So maybe you sin in one way and I sin in another, and still someone else, someone out there, sins in a different way. But we're all sinners. Perhaps your sin is a little less than mine or vice versa or maybe our sin is a little less or a little more than the people out there. We've all broken God's commands and we are all therefore defaced images of God. And we are all defacers of the image of God. We are both like the statues and like the vandals. So what went wrong is sin. And sin has defaced but not erased the image of God in mankind. We are creatures made in the image of our Creator, and sin has defaced but not erased the image of God in us. We've covered enough now for me to reveal the big idea of tonight's sermon that I want you to remember as you go home afterward. Here it is. Humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our Maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. Humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. And the need of forgiveness and restoration brings us to our last point. What now? What do we do as poor image bearers? What do we do as those who bear the marks of perversion and distortion and rebellion in ourselves? When we look at our hearts and we look and we see I'm not like God. There's sin in it. And I've been defaced 
I'm not what I am supposed to be. And some of it's my fault and some of it is the fault of other people sinning against me. But look at me. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I'm marred and distorted, defaced by sin. What now? As we look at others around us and we see they're not reflecting God properly. What now? Is there any hope for us who have defaced the image of God upon ourselves and upon the people around us? The answer is a resounding yes. For as Revelation 21 says, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God in Christ has set a plan in motion to forgive every sin of each of His people and to restore the image of God in them. There are two aspects of the good news about Jesus Christ, both related to the image of God in man and both of which deserve our attention this evening. The first is the judicial aspect of the forgiveness of sins, and the second is the transformative aspect of the restoration of the image of God in man. Pertaining to the first aspect, the forgiveness of sins, here's what we need to know. We did not fulfill our responsibility to image God properly. We did what God commanded us not to do, and we failed to do what God commanded us to do. We were not like God. We were bad representatives who failed to carry out His instructions. Oh, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus Himself said in John 14, 9, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And as the Council of Nicaea concluded in the 4th century, Christ is not just homoousios, that is of similar substance to the Father, but Jesus Christ is homoousios, of the same substance as the Father. Which means that Christ is the preeminent image bearer of God, because He is God Himself. We sang, Son of God and Son of Man. As a man, Jesus Christ was the perfect image bearer of God. The perfect image bearer of God. Which means He did in our place what we should have done. And we deserve God's wrath to be poured out upon us for our failure to bear His image properly. But Jesus, though He bore God's image properly, went to the cross for us poor image bearers. The only one who does not deserve to die for his sin, because he has none, died on the cross, bearing the punishment that we sinners deserve. God's wrath poured out on him. Why did he come to live this sinless life? Why did he die this punishment-bearing death? As a substitute for image-bearers who failed in their role and responsibility. Jesus came and lived in the place of sinners and died in the place of sinners so that we who do not fulfill our image-bearing role and responsibility properly can be justly forgiven without God relaxing even one iota His perfect standard of justice. So whoever trusts in Jesus for forgiveness on the basis of His substitutionary life and death will receive pardon and forgiveness for their sins. And this is good news. Real good news for us sinners. And pertaining to the second aspect of the gospel, the restoration of the image of God in man. Here's what we need to know. 
God is not content to merely pardon sinners. God is not content to merely leave us pardoned, but defiled, dirty, polluted, distorted, bent out of shape, chiseled away, and spray painted. God is not content merely to pardon us and leave us as defaced statues of Himself. But God has purpose to make you, Christian, look like His Son, Christ Jesus, the consummate image bearer. We read in Colossians 3.10 that we have a new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. In Ephesians 3.24 we read that in Christ Jesus we can and must put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We read in Romans 8.29 that those whom God foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son who is Himself the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Now we know that people who do not trust in Christ Jesus will not be made new, but will perish in their current bodies and souls in hell forever, apart from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. But God has purposed to make His people new. Those whom He has chosen for Himself, who respond in faith and repentance toward God, we'll find that not only will they have their sins pardoned, but God has purposed to restore the defaced image of God in them. God is working in those who are in Christ Jesus not only to forgive sins, but also to scrub away the spray paint, so to speak. To chisel away the unauthorized appendages. To repair the cracks and the missing pieces. To power wash the dust and dirt from our souls and to make us reflect His image clearly and purely as we were intended to do. So what now? The truth that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our Maker, yet in need of forgiveness and repair, means that we should look to God for pardon for our sins in and through His Son, Christ Jesus. God stands ready to forgive us for failing to bear His image properly. And we should look to God for restoration of the image of God. For He has promised to do so for all who trust in Him and put their faith in Him to make us new. So as the Maker whose image we bear, only God can forgive us for our sin, which was against Him. And only God, the Maker, can restore us to what He originally made us to be. So we need to look to Him for pardon and restoration. But this truth not only, ought not only to inform the way we relate to God, but also the way that we relate to other humans. If indeed it is true that human beings are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after the image of God, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration, then we must treat our fellow human beings as beings with dignity and worth, patterned after their Maker yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. In our day and age, it's assumed that if you disagree with someone, or if you see and point out a deficiency in someone, that you do not and cannot love them. So we're told that the best thing to do is affirm everything about everyone, and never challenge anyone about anything. And we're told that if you criticize or judge another person, that you're being unloving. 
But if it is true that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our Maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration, then we can see that the point of view that I just mentioned is woefully simplistic. The Bible doesn't give us such a neat and tidy assessment of human nature. The Bible does not say that either we are worthless good-for-nothings with no dignity or value, or that we are impeccable, brilliant, sparkling jewels of purity and value with no marks against us. The Bible just doesn't talk about human nature that way. That's not how the scripture deals with the essence of being human. The Bible teaches that we are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. So the choice of affirming everything or loving nothing in another person is a false dichotomy. And such a simplistic approach cannot account for reality. So much better is the biblical approach of loving people by affirming what common grace you can see in them. That is, ways in which they reflect, if only dimly, something of their Creator. And at the same time, loving them by pointing out areas in them in which they stand in need of forgiveness and restoration. When we love a statue that has been damaged by vandalism, we want to see it restored. What do you think the people in Cristiano Ronaldo's hometown did when they woke up in the morning and saw their hometown hero defaced? My guess is, and I don't know, I'm not sure what happened, but my guess is they were like, well, I'll call the garbage truck. Let's get rid of this thing. It's a piece of junk now after they spray painted it. My guess was they, they rallied together, probably. They said, hey, we've got to repair this thing. We've got to scrub off this spray paint and restore this statue of our hometown hero. Because they love the statue and that which it represents. And so they said, let's fix this thing. That has to be our attitude towards people. When we love people in whom we see something of the image of God, we want to see what has been damaged by the vandalism of sin, forgiven and restored. We want to see people vandalized by the guilt and the curse of sin, forgiven and made new in Christ Jesus. And so it's not as simple as affirming everything in someone or loving nothing in them, right? which is the way, really, frankly, most people, well, I don't know if I say most, but a lot of people think. Either just I agree with everything about this person and I always just affirm, 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 or I just don't like that person at all and write them off entirely. Right? A lot of times we just think too simplistically. But biblically, biblically what we need to do is love what is accordant with the image of God in the people around us. And point out to the people around us what sin has marred in order that they may look to Christ, point them to Christ as well, in order that they may find forgiveness and the restoration of the image of God in them. Let me try to paint a few mental pictures for you of what this application might look like in real life. What does it look like to try to do this? <clears throat> well, let's just give an example. A known homosexual man comes into a church. Instead of being met with looks of disgust and shunned after the service, he's welcomed and befriended mm. and shown the love of Christ and spoken to about the love of God in Christ in order that he might find forgiveness and restoration 
of the defaced image of God in you. Or a young mother struggling with anger problems opens up and shares her struggles with another young woman in the church. And her friend reminds her that the love of God never waxes or wanes for, her pe- for his people. And reassures her friend that the friendship is that the two women share in Christ won't be broken by her sin. But she also lovingly confronts her friend about the sin. And points her lovingly toward Christ that she might find forgiveness and restoration of the defaced image of God in her. Or an aging couple in a church struggling with various challenges or becoming bitter and grumpy. But instead of being treated dismissively as oh, that old cranky couple that are always complaining about this and that, and instead of relegating them to the sidelines of social life, this couple is lovingly engaged by pointing them toward Christ, in whom we find hope that transcends our temporal situations, in order that they might find forgiveness and restoration of the defaced image of God in that. We don't embrace people wholesale. We don't reject people wholesale. We love where we see the image of God in people. We affirm what we see of the image of God in people. We encourage what we see of the image of God in people. And where we see that sin has marred and distorted and defaced the image of God in people, we lovingly point the people around us to Christ in order that they might find forgiveness for those things and the restoration and the renewal of the image of God in those areas. So, we actually can love people better by engaging with them meaningfully as fellow image bearers rather than offering a shallow and superficial in toto affirmation. And we can also love people better by engaging with them meaningfully as fellow image bearers rather than offering whole-scale rejection. Right? By affirming what we see of the image of God in others and pointing them Christward for forgiveness and restoration of what sin has marred, we are actually loving others. Think of it from your own perspective. Would you rather be surrounded by people who don't really know you and don't really care to know you and don't really engage with your hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties, etc. and they just always offer you superficial platitudes of encouragement and unconditional affirmation to you? Or would you rather be surrounded by people who really do care to really know you? People who do care to really engage with your hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties, accomplishments, etc. and give you honest and meaningful feedback about what they see in you. Both good and bad, both realistic and unrealistic, both Christ-like and un-Christ-like, and point you Christward in order that you can receive forgiveness and restoration and really grow and develop as an image bearer of God. See, we need friends who don't just reject us outright and in, in, in toto, and we need friends who don't just affirm us all together. We need friends who see something of the image of God in us and encourage us and, and love us and really cherish what they see of the image of God in us and at the same time point us Christward to find forgiveness and a restoration of the image of God which has been defaced by sin. So if it is indeed true that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our Maker, 
yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. Then it ought to affect the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to one another. We should recognize our responsibility toward God to be image bearers, and we should look to Him for forgiveness in Christ Jesus for failing to do that. And we should look to Him for restoration of the defaced image of God. But we also, we also, in, in understanding this truth, need to understand that we need to treat the people around us with genuine love. And we need to go beyond superficial affirmation or whole-scale rejection. And we need to meaningfully engage with the people around us about issues of image-bearing. We need to start having meaningful conversations of encouragement and affirmation with our image-bearing friends, family members, co-workers, and neighbors. And hear me, whether Christian or not. Love them. Encourage them where you see the image of God in them. Engage meaningfully with them. Seek to know them and love what you see of the image of God in them. And we need to start having Christ-word pointing conversations of correction and confrontation with our image-bearing friends, family members, co-workers, and neighbors, whether Christian or not. The needs of all people, whether Christian or not, are the same. We were made in the image of God, but that image has been defaced by sin, and we all stand in need of forgiveness and restoration. So we need to engage fellow human beings on that level, loving and encouraging what we see of the image of God in others, and pointing them Christward to receive forgiveness and restoration in areas that they have been affected by the guilt and the curse and the destruction of sin. We all need that. So let's all commit to doing that this week and let's all not only think about how this applies in our interactions with others, but remember that we ourselves need to look Godward for this forgiveness and this restoration ourselves. So let's all look to Christ in response and seek to be forgiven and made increasingly Christ-like in the days ahead.